0: Hello and welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and professor. I thought I would talk about cognitive analytical therapy because a patron emailed me about it. Patron Charlotte, she writes, Hi Kirk, I have been recently, I have recently become a patron after having listened to your podcast for a year or so. I just wanted to say a huge thank you. I am a student at a university in Bristol, UK, studying on the professional doctorate of counseling psychology. A couple years ago, we had some teaching on cognitive analytical thera- analytic, cognitive analytic therapy, but I'm a bit out of practice and wondered if you could talk about it a bit. Well, uh, oh, and and she goes on to say, it's a really fascinating therapeutic modality and is evidence-based. It also fills in the gaps that CBT leaves in that it pays attention to relational issues. Well, thank you for writing in, patron Charlotte. It gave me an excuse to look into this topic because it's not really my area. But I could probably talk about it because cognitive analytic therapy is an integration of two therapies that I know pretty well. And so after just doing a little bit of reading, I feel like I can speak to it on some level. Um, It was initially developed in England by Anthony Ryle. He was mostly active seemingly in the 1990s. Anthony Ryle saw the human condition similar to the way I did apparently by his writing he uh, published many articles on object relations projective identification transference and countertransference defense mechanisms all that kind of stuff that I often talk about and he also seemingly was attempting or did did succeed in integrating cognitive therapy with psychoanalysis and called it cognitive analytic therapy it's you know makes sense cognitive meaning cognitive therapy and analytic meaning analytic therapy so we called it cognitive analytic therapy i always love it when the label of a therapy theory is easily understood you know labels like dialectical behavioral therapy to most people it's like what in the world does that mean <laughs> And there are many other kinds of therapies that don't make a lot of sense. Although I guess cognitive, the word cognitive and analytic to the general public means nothing to them. So anyway, in the 1970s, when uh, Anthony Ryle was an analyst, he became more and more impatient seemingly with how long it took for psychoanalysis to work. And so he started integrating cognitive therapy into his approach, because cognitive therapy is is a brief, short therapy, and analytic therapy is a therapy that lasts for a long time, traditionally speaking, especially in the 70s when he was coming of age. You know, analytic, traditional psychoanalytic therapy, and to some extent still today, is a therapy that involves often four sessions a week, and it tends to last for years and years. So by that nature it's quite quite time consuming and it's also very expensive so most people can't afford it one and could never dedicate that much time so uh analytic therapy for the vast majority of human beings on the planet is just completely impractical plus over the years we've learned that it's not exactly evidence-based in that there, for many disorders and many presenting problems that clients bring to therapy, it doesn't have positive outcomes as a result. And so, however, back when Anthony Ryle was coming of age as a clinician, psychoanalysis was the dominant form of therapy that was being offered by people. And at the time in the mid-20th century, you know, mid uh, you know, around the 50s, 60s, 70s. Cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, family therapies were all emerging as alternatives to psychoanalysis and uh, and also a more brief form of psychodynamic therapy. Psycho- so psychoanalysis uh, branched into various forms of what you could call psychodynamic therapies that are influenced heavily by they have the basis of the theory is psychoanalytic, but the practice is actually quite different. Like I'm a psychodynamic therapist and I would never see a client for even more than once a week. I would only, I only, at the max, I see clients once a week, but I'm a psychodynamic therapist. So now can you practice psychodynamic therapy four times a week? Sure. But it's not in the model and there are uh, much less expectations on psychodynamic uh, therapy clients to be in therapy for years and years. So it is a, it is a more long-term therapy than cognitive therapy and a lot of other brief therapies. But anyway, so I totally appreciate Anthony Ryle's integration of cognitive therapy and psychoanalysis. I have a similar integration. I, I integrate more than that. Actually, I, I integrate cognitive therapy which is similar to schema therapy and narrative therapy, behavioral therapy. uh, It has its obvious benefits, solution-focused therapy and other brief therapies, strategic and structural. And I also will integrate uh, a lot of family systems therapies and and then the psychodynamic, relational, interpersonal, uh, intersubjective therapies as well. So, some of you who are in the know are, and, and also I integrate humanistic psychotherapy. So, so some of you in the know would say, like, "Well, Kirk, you're you've integrated every theory that's available," and I and I say, "Yeah, I, I do," because they're all useful. And you know, I have talked about this in the podcast before. In that my field, uh, it's changing slowly, but in general, most people in my field, anecdotally anyway, and according to the literature they will say that you can't integrate two different theories, that you have to adhere to one theory, and that's it. And if you try to integrate, for instance, cognitive therapy and psychoanalysis the way that Anthony Ryle did, you're just lying to yourself, and you're, you're producing a an adequate, unethical form of therapy that just will never work. And I just find this to be ridiculous. If you're in the field, you know... This line of thinking and maybe even adhere to it yourself and if you do I challenge you to be uh, I challenge actually what I challenge you to do is produce actual evidence as to why that claim is made if you can actually convince me that integrating cognitive therapy with psychoanalysis is empirically a bad idea then I will be convinced but I guarantee you that will never happen because it's not possible cognitive therapists hated psychoanalysts be- in the beginning because they were emerging you know they were the they were the new guy on the block and psychoanalysis was the old codger on the block who possessed all the money and all the clients and all the accolades everyone thought psychoanalysts were the you know super smart ethereal you know arcane wizards of of talk therapy and then these these upstarts cognitive therapists come on the scene and they have this very simple, uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, like elementary style of, of therapy and they are competing for resources, the cognitive therapists with the psychoanalysts. And so they start talking shit about each other and that tradition still holds today. And but in the midst of all this, Anthony Ryle in England was integrating these two because he saw that they both had had merit and could could benefit from being integrated in that uh, his style was analytic, but it also was brief and also involved automatic thoughts and helping people to understand how their automatic thoughts affect their lives in ways that they would like to change. You know, I when I think about so (laughs) I've talked about this in the podcast before, but I was at a party, I think just last year or maybe two years ago, and somehow got to talking with a psychoanalyst and he and I were going back and forth. And then at some point, I I was just curious. I said, so, you know, I actually integrate psychodynamic theory with a few other theories. You know, I just want to know what your opinion was on that. And he was a nice, smart guy and older. He was, you know, in his, I don't know, he's probably like 70 years old or something. And, and so I expected him because he was so nice and we had bonded in that short amount of time. I expected him to say, oh, yeah, you know, sure, go ahead, integrate. I don't I don't like to integrate, but, you know, you seem like uh, you've got it under control, so, you know, go for it. But that's not what he said. What he said was, that's ridiculous. You can't integrate psychoanalysis or psychodynamic theory with other forms of therapy. That can never be done, and you're stupid for even thinking such a thing. And I said, well, can you please convince me why that's true? And he, you know, said all the normal things like, well, the theory is incompatible. They pull you in two different directions. And I said, well, you know, can you convince me of that? Because I, I don't think that that's true at all. And let me tell you. And so I gave him some examples. He's like, well, no, I'd, Kirk, I don't think you get it. It's, it can never happen. And so we argued and it got, it escalated. And I, you know, it's like, it's, if anyone was watching us and people were, it's like, who, what are these two arguing about? You know, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. But, and at one point I just stopped and I said, basically what you're saying to me is that these two therapies cannot be integrated because of dogma. Is that what you're saying? And he, and he said, yes, it's because of dogma. And he wasn't being sarcastic. He was like, yes, absolutely. And I think he said that because we had gone down a road that I think maybe he was starting to realize that it was dogma. I'm not sure. Or maybe he just said yes, because he wanted to stop arguing with me. I don't know. You're going to have to ask him and I won't give out his name because that would be funny. But to me, it's 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 like, I'm, and I'm trying to think of an analogy for people that aren't in the field, but... To me, it's like, let's see, it's, you know, let's say you had uh, a field, uh, a discipline that tried to or, you know, maybe sales, for instance. Yeah. Okay. So say, say you got a bunch of a, a bunch of salespeople together and you have one group of people on one side of the room that are the eye contact people. They're the people that say, look, when you're trying to sell uh, a cell phone to somebody or you're trying to sell a car. You, you want to establish eye contact with them because when you establish eye contact, it works. It doesn't work all the time, but, but I know it works. We've done research that says, you know, you, you take a thousand salespeople and 500 of them do eye contact and the other 500 don't do eye contact. And the group that does the eye contact, they have a more positive outcomes in, in sales as opposed to the other group. Well, on the other side of the room, you have this, they have this other group of people. And they're saying, no, uh, it's, not, it's not about eye contact. It's about smiling. When you smile at people, that l- leads to more sales. And we have our evidence, too. We have our evidence. We've done our research. When you smile at people, regardless of eye contact, you find that you have more sales. And I've, I've seen it work. And I've gone to school and I'm a certified smiler. And on the other side of the of the room, you're like, well, I've done plenty of, you know, continuing ed and, you know, lots of personal experience telling me that eye contact really works. Well, then I'm in the middle of the room saying, well, they both work. (laughs) Yes, you're right. Eye, Eye contact absolutely works to sell cars. Now, not all the time, but it's a, gen, a good general rule to follow in terms of helping people. Some people, it's actually going to be the opposite. They're not going to like eye contact. But you, as the as the salesperson, have to figure that out for each customer. But in general, eye contact will work, yes. And you on the other side of the room, yes, smiling will work. Not all the time. And it's not a magic bullet, but it works. Now, imagine if you smiled and used eye contact. How? effective of a salesperson you would be that is exactly what i am doing when i'm saying this sort of thing to people and i and i'm you know i'm telling the the psychoanalysts yes you have merit you have a, a therapy that is tried and true and definitely works otherwise it wouldn't exist in the in the level that it does i mean there's so many different psychodynamic people And so many clients of psychodynamic, psychoanalytic therapies that will say that it helped them, you know, it works. And then I'm looking at the other side of the room and I'm saying, yes, cognitive therapists, your therapy works and it is wonderful. But when a client comes to you and they present a particular problem, you have to decide between the two or what integration of the two is best for that particular client For some people, for instance, they have a phobia of swallowing pills. Psychoanalysis is not the best approach. Now, it might be, given that particular client, but evidence would show and research would show that you really want to take a behavioral approach of exposure therapies and maybe cognitive therapy as well. And they don't need psychoanalysis, and they don't need psychodynamic relational therapies. Someone else comes in with, say, borderline personality disorder, or they come in with a long life of relational problems and self-esteem problems and uh, you know, things like that and cognitive therapy, behavioral therapies might help a little bit for sure, but psychodynamic relational therapies, longer term attachment oriented therapies are the thing to use there. Now with the person who comes in, who, attachment oriented relational therapies are best for might an occasional cognitive intervention work with them? Yes. So, you know, that's just the way that I think about it. I'm going to try to remember that analogy, the the eye contact people and the smiling contact salespeople. Okay. So cognitive analytic therapy has an association called the association for cognitive analytical therapy, which I'm going to call from now on, C-A-T or CAT, <laughs> Cognitive analytic, analytic Therapy. So according to the website, CAT tries to focus on what a person brings to therapy, which they call target problems, which is very similar to cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy will have, you know, target problems. And the deeper patterns of relating that underlie them. So right there, you're looking at more of a psychodynamic point of view. So just in that sentence... Cat tries to focus on what a person brings to therapy, which we call target problems. So that first bit is very cognitive uh, in language and and the deeper patterns of relating that underlie them. So that's very analytic. Schema people would also say that I'm guessing that cognitive analytic therapy is very close in practice anyway to schema therapy, although I'm sure the language is probably different because schema therapy doesn't come from an analytic analytic linguistic background okay also uh so just just looking at how uh, see cat or cognitive analytic therapy is similar to cognitive behavioral therapy it uh for and this is this has nothing to do with cognitive or analytic therapy but but cat is a collaborative type of therapy because the founder, uh, Anthony Ryle was influenced by collaborative therapy. So he's, he's very much, uh, so this form of therapy isn't into labeling people. It's not into diagnosing people. It's not into top down therapy. It's, it's, it's more interested in, uh, collaborating with the client and, and really listening to the client rather than having quote unquote objective viewpoints about the client. Uh, I'm sure that, at the, at the core of cat therapy is the notion that you as the therapist can never really observe reality. You know, you have just as much bias as the client does and all that kind of stuff. So that's one difference between cat and CBT cat also talks about automatic thoughts, which is right down the middle of cognitive therapy. Cat is brief, like CBT, It is usually manualized at 16 to 24 sessions, which is quite brief. Uh, But, you know, common. Um, There's a lot of clients who I see that fall in that range. CAT is an active therapy, like CBT. And the word active is used in my field to describe therapies in which the therapist is, is active rather than passive, meaning that the therapist might direct the client a little bit, might ask questions that are, are directed by the therapist's uh, agenda. The therapist might talk more in a, in a quote unquote active therapy. So cat is active like CBT, whereas animal psychoanalytic therapy, you could say is the least active form of therapy known to our field. CAT therapy uh, also involves homework, similar to cognitive and behavioral therapy, like a diary of your automatic thoughts, that kind of stuff. CAT, in contrast to CBT, is more collaborative. Like I said earlier, it's it's collaborative, similar to postmodern therapies or brief family therapies cat involves discussing the past unlike CBT CBT is not interested in talking about the past and when and cognitive when cognitive therapy first emerged it was diametrically opposed it was just like why are you talking about the past as and behavioral therapy is the same it's just like that has nothing to do with anything we don't we're not going to talk about that CAT involves working on the relationship between the client and the therapist. This is very much opposed to CBT and very much in line with psychodynamic therapies. In this way, uh, cognitive analytic therapy is relational. With CAT, you explore your childhood and you look for how your childhood influences your relationship patterns. This is right down the middle of psychodynamic therapies. But unlike psychodynamic therapies, it's very brief, and it might focus on the client's cognitions or their automatic thoughts rather than diving deep into their underlying issues. So so CAT is okay with diving deep into issues, but you have to do so rather quickly because you're only doing 60 and 24 sessions. But I can tell you from experience that you can dive deep. If you have a good relationship with your client and the client is willing to go there, you can dive deep into things really quick. There's this misconception, you know, people will sometimes be consulting with me and, and I'll ask them a question like, well, you know, you might want to start looking into this client's history as to uh, looking not only for some insight into why the client is doing the things that they're doing today, but also in terms of healing some of those wounds that they experienced early on. And the therapist will say, "Well, you know, I'm sort of in a brief situation. And I don't know how many sessions I have left with the client." And although that's fine, it's a, it's a it's it's good to be realistic about that. But at the same time, you I've I've dove deep into those issues with clients within the span of just five minutes. It doesn't take that long, and can open a can of worms for sure. But uh, therapy should never be afraid of. Cans of worms, in my opinion. Having said that, you you always have to be careful about not just like trancing down the trail and not being aware of the context. But but anyway, in my in my experience, some therapists are just too afraid of of that sort of thing and use that as an excuse because they they just they're not comfortable diving deep into things. At least some of the people I've talked to. Anyway, uh, so as far as I could tell. Cognitive analytic therapy is a, is a UK thing. It's an English thing. I don't see it much in the US, but that's just anecdotal. I mean, maybe there's billions of people. Well, it couldn't be billions, but maybe there's millions of CAT practitioners in the United States. But I have never met someone in my neck of the woods that says I'm a cognitive analytic therapist. I think it's mainly a, a British thing uh so if you practice it let me know I will say that if someone watched me they might say oh you're cognitive analytic yeah you're you're a cognitive analytic therapist when you start looking at the various different integrations many of them will be quite similar and so cognitive analytic therapy definitely appeals to me for sure i although I'm not so keen on the fact that it's rigid in terms of it's 16 to 24 sessions to me, I like to be flexible to the client. And if it's, if it's much less than that, like five sessions, I would like to think that I could adjust it to that. Or if it's five years, I would like to think that I could adjust it to that. So, so there's that. Um, plus cognitive analytic therapy doesn't integrate systems theory, family systems theory. It doesn't integrate humanistic psychology ideas, or, uh, behavioral ideas. And so, you know, for that reason, uh, that integration, uh, won't, won't appeal to me, but I like it. I, I dig it. And I'm thankful to patron Charlotte for giving me this opportunity to, to look into it. So let's see patron Charlotte. What, what did you ask originally? You said it's a really fascinating therapeutic modality and is evidence-based, right? So, Cognitive analytic therapy, because it is, it is um, sort of uh, limited to a certain amount of sessions, it can be, it can be evaluated more easily. Uh, Therapies like psychodynamic therapies are harder to evaluate because there's no, there's no limitation to how many sessions. And so, you you know, you can't say, well, I'm going to treat Uh, these people from anywhere from one to 20 years. And then we're going to decide whether or not this form of therapy is useful. It's just impractical for research. It's hard to research um, along those lines to do, you know, the sort of gold standard of, of, uh, of trials, random randomized controlled trials. And so, so because CAT is limited to 16, 24 sessions, it lends itself more easily to what they call evidence-based therapy research. And, and it has been found to be evidence based, as you know, I've talked about before uh, on the podcast. I'm I'm keen regarding I'm keen to evidence based therapies and the philosophy of evidence based, uh, the movement to create and look into and to promote evidence based therapies in my field. But I'm also uh, not so keen about it. Whenever I talk about this, I always trigger at least a few people to email me and say like, "Hey." You know, evidence-based therapy—it's a—it's a good thing, you know, and um, uh, and because it's—it's it's one of those areas in my field that there's a lot of emotion around. It's sort of be like whenever I talk about uh, feminism or something, you know, there's there's bound to be a, a group of people, uh, and maybe everybody that will have a problem with what I'm saying. There's an ideology around evidence-based therapy that. You can trigger. It's it's not simply a an idea that people talk about. It's something that people believe in in some ways. And so, uh, oh geez, I've already gone down. I've I've tipped my toe into the water. Let's see if I want to jump jump in a little bit here. Uh, basically. You know, in the old days, you had all of these practitioners, therapists, just doing whatever they wanted without any kind of quality control. And you had a lot of really dubious therapies happening and a lot of uh, patients who were being harmed and or at the very least just not treated very well. And then. As time went on, we started saying, "Hey, let's start actually looking at this stuff. Let's start trying to see if what we're doing is actually helping." Because it's hard; we we don't know. We haven't even researched it, and there was this resistance on behalf of, uh, frankly, a lot of psychoanalytic people because they, I'm guessing, were worried one that it, that you know it would the research would find that their form of therapy wasn't as helpful as they believed it was so they were basically insecure about it and also they were worried that the research methods didn't lend themselves to psychoanalysis and so early on when the evidence based movement occurred which was in all likelihood innocent at first it became basically a a contentious issue between traditional psychoanalytic psychodynamic therapies and everyone else pretty much. So you had all, you had all these cognitive therapists and the behavioral therapists and brief therapists who were trying to be trying to further their theory in, in relation to the dominant psychoanalysis. And so their form of therapy was much easier to test You know, if you have 10 sessions of a manualized, manualized meaning that it follows a very specific, almost like a script. It's not like a script, but it's like session one, you do this. Session two, you do this. Session three, you might even have this worksheet. Session four, you ask for the homework. And session five, and so because it's manualized in that way and it follows this this 10 or 20-session format, it lends itself much, much better to a randomized controlled trial for which is the gold standard of, of trial uh, therapy, effectiveness, research, outcomes, research. And so, so early on in the field, before I think I was ever even in the field, there was already this massive fighting going on between the traditional psychodynamic people and the the new kids on the block, uh, cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, family therapy, gestalt therapy, these kinds of people. So, so when I say something like I'm down with evidence-based therapies but I'm also not down with with evidence-based therapies I trigger one or both sides of that fight that go that is ongoing in my field. And you to to the evidence-based people I will say absolutely. You know, we should definitely look at our outcomes and we should definitely evaluate ourselves as objectively as we possibly can and not have sacred cows and not be blinded by our own narcissism regarding uh, what we believe to, to be helpful. And uh, one of the interesting things about this topic is that when they actually do outcomes research that doesn't, uh, that isn't beholden to any particular theory, what they find is the variance in outcomes is only 10% of the variance in outcomes is only related is, is related to the theory that you use. So in other words, uh, th- when they try to figure out what works in therapy, 10% of the effectiveness of therapy is related to the particular theory use. So it's a very low amount of variance in outcomes. Whereas I think something like thirty percent of the variance is related to the relationship that you have with the therapist, with the client and therapist, and, and that has to do with um, positive regard and empathy and goal consensus and a whole slew of things. And so, the relationship is three times. And this is off the top of my head, so my God, if I am getting it wrong, I am sorry, but. It's, a, it's along these lines three times the amount of variance in outcomes in therapy is related just to the relationship in relation than it is to the particular theory that you're using, which is, you know, really sort of mind blowing because people spend way more time concentrating on their theory than they do on the on the relationship usually. And so in some ways, it's like it doesn't really matter what theory you use. It, what is most important is the relationship that you have with, with the client. And relationship meaning many things, not just that it feels good, but, you know, that there's goal consensus and that you ask for feedback and you deal with your countertransference well. And the client believes that you're paying attention to, their, to what they want out of therapy and, you know, and that you repair ruptures well. You know, it involves lots of different elements, but... But anyway, why was I going down that road? Oh, yeah. So, so that's, me ta- that's me saying evidence-based, yes. And the, but then to the people that are anti-evidence-based stuff, I just say, I'm with you. And there is a, you know, therapy is an art form, uh, particularly when it comes to particular presenting problems. When someone comes in and says, I would like to explore my life, I have lived a long life, and I have some things that I'm sad about, and I have some things that I just want to look at. I want to reflect on myself. I just went through a divorce, and I just want to kind of figure out what happened. You know, I just want to sort of like, I don't know. I don't know what what's going on in my life. I want to like I just I want someone to confront me on my bullshit or you know, I get a lot of clients that say that kind of stuff and I have to say that does not lend itself toward any particular theory very well. There because there's because there's not a diagnosis there. The person just wants to explore there's nothing wrong with them. And so that presenting problem I'm telling you does not lend itself to CBT very very much. If I just took a manualized CBT treatment to that client, they would look at me and go like, what are you doing? You know, you're not letting me explore this. You're not asking me philosophical questions about my childhood and about the poetry of life and all that kind of stuff. And so to that therapy, it's much better to be in a humanistic psychology sort of mode and a psychodynamic mode or a gestalt mode these more, uh, depth psychology, these more in-depth psychology kinds of modes. And so now how do you measure that client having a positive outcome? How, how, you know, how do you empirically measure whether or not therapy worked for that person? There's no scale of existential crisis resolution. <laughs> There's no scale of. I now am more in tune with my reality than I was before. There's no, there's no measure for that. There are measures for depression. There are measures for phobias. There are measures for PTSD symptoms. There are not measures for a lot of the things that people come into therapy for. And so, to say that, because, because on the evidence-based therapy side, there are people that say if you don't use an evidence-based therapy you are being unethical and you're being ridiculous. But there are so many things that people come into therapy for that have nothing to do with evidence-based therapies and don't even have to do necessarily with an outcome. Uh, I've, I've plenty of clients like that that come into therapy that, that they don't have an outcome in their mind as to what they want out of it. You know, Say even a couple came into therapy and they're thinking about divorcing but they're open to things getting better. What is the outcome that they're looking for, you know? Because in the end they might decide it's best to break up. So if I if I say the goal of therapy is to uh keep their marriage together and improve their marriage but they end up getting a divorce, then the therapy completely failed. But if you asked all those involved, they would say, "No, I definitely benefited from the therapy. It helped me clarify my thoughts and you know, it helped us to communicate, and we blah blah blah. And you know, maybe you could have outcomes around communication and that sort of thing. But there's just there's a um, there's just a lot of things that people come in it there before that just don't lend themselves to evidence based. Having said that, going back to evidence based therapies, someone comes in with depression that's that's fairly discreet. Some comes in with a phobia or a, or PTSD. They're they're I agree that if you do not apply one of the quote-unquote evidence-based therapies in that situation, you are potentially acting unethical and you potentially are not doing right by your client. You know, someone comes in with PTSD and you proceed to just explore their feelings about it. That is not the, uh, it's not likely to help them. Even though the client doesn't know that you're incompetent you're basically acting in an incompetent way and you need to learn, you know, proper therapy, you know, trauma therapies, that that sort of stuff. So anyway, yeah. So cognitive analytic therapy is evidence-based. Why did I go down that road? Anyway, thank you patron Charlotte for writing in that does it for this episode of psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. If you haven't yet become a patron, please do so, you know, become a patron like Charlotte. You know, she seems like a a smart cookie. And if you want to be a smart cookie like Patron Charlotte, become a patron. Go to patreon.com. Do it. Do it now. All right. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.